พุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสังเราไม่สามารถที่จะเป็นคนที่มีความสุขได้ด้วยการที่เราพยายามทำอะไรที่มีความสุขเราไม่สามารถที่จะเป็นคนที่มีความสุขได้ด้วยการที่เราพยายาม
can seem really tedious. That's patient endurance. And yet it's really important. Or gratitude, cultivating gratitude. It's quite possible that we can be caught up in just wanting to make progress in, in practice and and we can be focusing on wanting to make progress and at the same time feeling really disappointed at our lack of progress, very discontented. And yet we're living in extraordinarily fortunate circumstances. And without gratitude, then we can be suffering the obstruction of discontentment. So paying attention to these qualities, which are traditionally called virtues, and sometimes the teachings about virtues in the past might have been might have been transmitted by way of intimidation and shaming and and that's unfortunate because you might be able to frighten somebody into uh, developing wholesomeness for a while however it's quite likely that they'll turn around and and reject it afterwards and the more skillful approach to cultivating virtues or cultivating wholesomeness the supportive conditions that can potentially lead to developing of insight is uh, when they're presented with understanding we can see the benefit we can reflect for ourselves and consider the benefit of cultivating sila how developing sila can lead to self-respect how developing generosity can generate a counterforce to the compulsive um, greediness that we can accumulate in life so Reflecting on these in a skillful way, generating these supportive conditions and not merely dwelling on fantasies and imagining what it's going to be like to have grown our own vegetables and eating them. Imagination is great. We're lucky we have such an active capacity for imagining. However, if our imagination is not in balance and in harmony with our body, with the rest of us, if we're split off and all we do is imagine, mm, that's um, probably going to be disappointing. So that was more or less the talk of two weeks ago. This evening I thought it could be useful to uh, look into, to consider the kind of adjustments that might need to take place if you have experienced some insight. Mm, probably... Some of you at least have been meditating long enough now to have had an experience whereby you find yourself thinking, whoa, I didn't expect that to happen, or how did that happen? Something really new can arise. And, and if you have such an experience, and it's an experience of sufficient depth and, and it's in keeping with the Buddha's teachings, then there's going to be and understanding that the deluded sense of self didn't cause the insight. The insight, the shift, if it's genuine and significant, then there's, there's going to be a recognition that, that this self-obsessed I didn't cause it, didn't create it. And, and that, can, that can generate a certain tension Unless, of course, you're one of those very few human beings who, at the point of insight, managed to let go of all mistaken identification with the deluded sense of self. If you're one of those few people, then this talk is not for you. For most people, 
it's the case that even after some level of insight, there's still going to be this momentum of the sense of I, I am somehow responsible for it. Even though at the time of insight, maybe there was a recognition that I didn't do it, afterwards this I can creep in again and lay claim to it and feel like I was responsible for it. And it felt so real and, and so meaningful and I want to do it again. And maybe with time we, we forget that I didn't do it in the first place. So that can be tricky. And so what sort of effort might we need to be making? What sort of adjustment might we need to make to our practice if there has been some genuine shift in perspective uh, on experience? What sort of adjustment might we need to make to our effort, to the way we hold practice? How do we hold practice after there has been some sort of insight? How we hold it is very important and can make a world of difference. Recently somebody gave the monastery here an e-bike and um, a normal bicycle, however, it's got a, a really fancy battery little engine in it, which means even if you've got wobbly knees and ankle like me, you can still use this bike and and uh, doesn't cause any damage to the body and get out and get some exercise and so when we were given this bike I was I was very keen to get out and I found it really helped in getting some extra exercise and however I noticed quite quickly that that in my my right forearm I started getting these aches and pains and pins and needles going up my arm and and went on for several days even weeks I thought what's going on here am I developing some sort of disease or something and, and then it tweaked how actually the roads around here are quite bumpy, full of potholes, and and if you hold the handlebars too tightly, that can be really putting some pressure on that you weren't used to. And and of course, you don't want to let go of the handlebars. You, you, you want to have, be in control. However, if our wanting to be in control is too compulsive, then we hold too tightly. And that, in fact, is what I was doing. I hadn't had much experience with riding a bike for quite a while. And so I was holding too tightly and after a period of days and weeks eventually I found there's a way of holding the handlebars where it's just safe. You're holding the handlebars just right so you're in just the right sort of control and now there's no pain in my right forearm, no pins and needles, thank goodness. So learning how to hold in the right way, how to make the right kind of effort, if there has been some significant shift in our approach to practice or our appreciation of experience, it's something that we do with our whole body-mind. How do we we know the right kind of effort to make? The place I would recommend is withdrawing on the heart of gratitude and if we reflect on how grateful we feel for what we're learning for what we're engaged in in practice to really dwell on gratitude that gratitude maybe is going to help 
protect us, help inhibit, help inhibit the tendency to lay claim to the inside. Very significant. Remember the illustration that we have in the traditional scriptures of how the Buddha, after his awakening, <clears throat> surveyed the world and looked around and said, who can I pay respects to? Which I think is fair enough to say that paying respects is also a way of expressing gratitude. And that's the first thing the Buddha did was, who can I pay my respects to? Bowing, you know. Instead of sitting there thinking about what sort of effort should I make, maybe the right thing to do is just to bow. Maybe we don't know why we're bowing. I remember, again, um, many years ago now, I remember visiting the, the uh, great teacher in Thailand, Ajahn Mahabua, and in Udon Thani, and, and had a few days to stay with him there. And, and uh, I heard a lot about Ajahn Mahabua. He was very famous and renowned for being quite fierce, renowned for being uh, an awakened being, and uh, however, a, quite a fierce awakened being. And, and you don't mess around. Uh, you're really on your toes when you're living at what, what Babanta, at his monastery. And, and I think it was the first morning I was there. I was standing waiting in the meeting hall for the teacher to arrive before we went out on arms round. And so he arrives. And I was t quite taken aback to notice how the first thing he did was go across to the shrine and get down and do these bows in front of the shrine. And he didn't walk around the, the meeting hall complaining about how the floor hadn't been properly cleaned or scolding. He just went straight to the shrine and paid respect to the Buddha image. And it rather struck me. I was kind of taken back. And I can't remember exactly what I was thinking at the time, but I suspect the reason I was taken aback was because I thought, well, here's an awakened being. What's he doing bowing for? I mean, what does he need to be doing that for? It's the disposition of a disciple naturally wants to express appreciation and gratitude and, and it's a, something that if we experiment with it don't just hear this and then believe it and say oh I should be feeling grateful rather experiment with what is the effect of feeling grateful on the heart and cultivating that quality of wholesomeness and Something else I remember from, whether it was that visit or another occasion, and I don't even know if it's actually particularly relevant to this contemplation, but maybe I'll mention it anyway, a, a story of, of Ajahn Mahabua talking about the process of awakening and how, how it affects the heart. He said that, that from the initial periods after awakening, he said, you're disinclined to teach anybody because it's so evident how incredibly foolish everybody is. Everybody's going around doing things to make themselves unhappy and blaming other people for it. And he just said, how could people be so foolish? And said, apparently the, 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 the clarity, the perception of the, the cause of suffering and the and the foolishness of unawakened beings is so vivid that you're disinclined to even try to teach anybody. And however, he said that as time goes by, just the nature of the awakened heart, the heart becomes softer. 
and gentler. And then he, he spoke about one of the other great teachers in, in, in that part of Thailand as well. And, and he said, oh, that Ajahn, he's, he, he's, so, he's so gentle. You know, originally he was like a tiger, but these days he's just like a pet cat and everybody goes and pulls his tail. He's so gentle and so on. So expressing gratitude, cultivating gratitude, if there has been some, some significant shift, then drawing on that, uh, not just continuing with some technique that we might have learnt, and you know, rather turning to simply dwelling on gratitude. Personally, as part of my private devotional practices, morning and evening, I, in English I express my gratitude and Thank you, Lord Buddha. Thank you, Lord Dhamma. Thank you, Lord Sangha. Also, what is worth dwelling on is the fact that we don't know what we're doing. Getting used to not knowing learning how to feel okay about not knowing. If you find yourself in new territory, say, what do I do now? Well, I would strongly recommend acknowledging that you don't know what to do. It might sound so obvious it doesn't even warrant mentioning. However, the danger is that because of the momentum of our misidentification with the deluded I who feels that they're responsible for their practice because of that conditioning we can feel like I should know what I'm doing why would we do that why would we impose it I should know what I'm doing I clearly don't know what I'm doing new territory this is new so it can be really helpful to feel the feel the ground beneath your feet. This is where I'm at. I don't know what I'm doing. And how does that feel? There's a good chance that it won't feel very good. And let's not push past that. Let's not push past the perception of I don't know what I'm doing. Particularly important at the point where we're hopefully working on integrating whatever insights may have arisen in practice. To not push past the fact that I don't know what I'm doing. And in service of that, cultivating that appreciation, finding, getting creative in ways of undermining that momentum, bringing it up into awareness, being more alert to the consequence of being caught up in that momentum of I feeling responsible for my, for my practice. Before any insight, it probably was. The, it's very likely there was a sense of I am doing my practice and I am looking for the results of my practice and maybe I'm experiencing some benefit in my practice. However, if there is a significant shift in, in appreciation of experience, then it's going to likely move more into allowing practice rather than I doing the practice. But that momentum might still be there, that, that 
that somehow I am responsible for it. And so finding creative ways of undermining it or bringing it up into awareness. At the end of my bed, in my, my kuti, I have this notice on the wall which says, I will die alone. And of course, I see it very regularly and often. And if that statement, I will die alone, if that triggers any degree of discomfort or aversion, I don't like that thought. Who is it? What is it? What is it that feels put off by that? Well, it's the self-obsessed sense of I. So finding skillful, creative ways and particularly ways of registering in the body, not just in our heads. We maybe come up with some clever mind games to deal with the perception of I don't know what I'm doing. What does it feel like in the body to say I don't know? And also talking about practicing in the body, practicing in the whole body-mind. Let's not underestimate the work we might have to do after there's been some insight to deal with the backlog of unmet life. We all have it, things that happened in early life because we simply weren't aware enough at the time or strong enough or supported enough. Experiences of, of anger that we didn't really live through. And we just locked it away in the nervous system, pushed it down into the basement. Sadness. And we didn't want to be seen to be sad because feeling being sad was being weak. And, or being afraid was being weak. So we hid it. So we pretended to ourselves. And However, all these feelings, these emotions, they're all energy. They don't just disappear because we don't want them. So, so where do they go if we don't live through them, if we don't meet them? They get stored away in the nervous system, in our muscles, in our guts. And, and so then if you take on the spiritual exercises and, and something shifts and there's an opening, it's not just an opening of the mind, it's going to have its uh, consequences on the body. And, and then all this stuff starts surfacing. So what's that? Maybe it's a situation where you find yourself feeling particularly vulnerable and and something, somebody behaves in a way which you perceive as as, as uh, being dishonourable or um, breaking a sense of trust, and and then you feel like this reaction of betrayal, deep sense of betrayal, deep sense of of having what you thought a trusting relationship broken, and you can have a really extreme reaction to it. So why is this reaction so, so extreme? Well, maybe I'm a bad person. Maybe I'm a really bad person. I've got really bad karma from my past life. Maybe that's true. However, I wouldn't jump to that conclusion. It might also just be the fact that this is the opportunity to clear out the basement. Guess what? You're more aware now, more alive, more honest. And instead of just practicing some meditation technique and trying to replicate an insight or build on it or have another insight, maybe what we're going to have to do is slow down and come out of the attic and go down to the basement and, and clear up some of that 
unmet life that we've got stored away. Let's not underestimate how obstructive old unmet life can be. Unreasonable extreme reactions is it well, they didn't do anything that bad except I hate them now. I mean, this is rage, sweating and fuming with rage just because somebody did, did some little thing. So, well, don't be overly quick to judge yourself and think there's something wrong and worry about your past life karma. And maybe just consider that this is something that wasn't really fully met early on in life and, and be willing to meet it. Say, yes, welcome. Pleased to meet you. Pleased to meet you. There's room for you too. There's room for everybody and everything. Mm-hmm. There is a situation now that, that we, most of us probably grew up in, whereby we, as children, we, we get into a huff over something, and then we just run off to our own bedroom and lock the door and sulk or distract ourselves from reading a book or something. It never used to be that way. Human beings, most human beings, grew up all living in one space together. We couldn't run away. And even these days it's even used as a form of punishment. You know, you just get sent to your room and go away. And so unfortunately a lot of people never really learn how to live through the pain of life the intense emotions, the anger, the, the disappointment, the fear, the sadness, in the company of other human beings, and, and develop very strong skills in denial, and just hiding it away. And up in our heads, you know, the more disembodied we become, the, the more convinced we are that we're not feeling anything. And it's there. It's, it hasn't gone away. So let's not underestimate the work we might have to do in this journey to to clear up um, some of the old unmet life. And let's not also, let's not underestimate the benefit, and this is something the Buddha encouraged, of, of having spiritual companions, and particularly when we're doing some of that difficult work. So why, what's going on here? Why am I having to deal with so much anxiety and, and fear? I mean, I'm not that awful a person, I don't think. So how come I've got all this negativity to deal with? And sometimes just having a good listener, a good friend, a trustworthy companion, what the Buddha called a kalyanamitta, uh, a trustworthy spiritual companion, to listen to us can be a great blessing. Uh, it's not the case that we necessarily want or need anybody else to tell us how to let go of our obstructions. We're not talking about that, just... There's a, an interesting thing happens that, that if you're in the company of somebody who really knows how to listen, somebody who knows better than we do about meeting themselves, and, and they're, they're able to listen to us, there's something that can happen whereby just in articulating where we're at, we find ourselves in a new relationship with where we're at. Just in making the effort to talk about where we're at, in the presence of somebody who's really able to listen, can take us to a new relationship with where we're at. And the other person, all they did was be present and listen. However, wonderful things can come from that. Wonderful things can happen from that. And if such a, if we do experience such a benefit, then that's worth registering. And say, well, 
Maybe this is something I could also offer other people. And finally, um, in this contemplation on how we might change the effort, the approach in practice and holding it in a different way, I would very strongly encourage that we remember those lines from the chanting that we, we chant together here in the monastery. I am a servant of the Buddha. I am a servant of the Dhamma. I am a servant of the Sangha. What does that mean? Why do we chant that? Chant that. I am a servant of the Buddha. I am a servant of the Dhamma. I am a servant of the Sangha. To me, what it means is I am a servant of actuality. I am a servant of reality. I am a servant of truth. I want to live my life. I want to live my life in in service to that which is real. Not to fantasies. Not to deluded stories. I want to serve that which is real. All deluded egos are control freaks. All deluded egos love controlling everything compulsively. Of course, yes, there's a right quality of control. However, compulsive controlling, well, we probably all know by now where that gets us. So how do we counter that being a compulsive control freak? Well, I would suggest reflecting on what it means to be a servant of the Triple Gem. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. <coughs> Did I 